Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. It is Thursday, April 22nd, 2021. Yeah, episode number 61. How are you today, David? Hey, today you're getting your second uh, vaccination. I know. I am very excited. I'm excited to just have a little bit more freedom of movement, to be able to go more places, do more things. I've been very safe this last 13, 14 months, and... I haven't gotten sick, and you haven't gotten sick, and no one I've known has gotten sick. And I think that's partly due to my responsibility. Uh, I would like to think that being responsible had a little something to do with it. Well, I think it does. I think it does. And I think if more people were responsible, thought about themselves, and thought about others, I think uh, we would be in a better position today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I didn't hesitate to get the vaccine at all, because unlike those people that are really afraid, I'm not afraid. <laughs> like Guillermo said, we, we watched, I think we watched that off stream, though. The Jimmy Kimmel, yeah, he's talking about how 50% of all Republican men are afraid to get the vaccine. Why do you think that is, Guillermo? And he's like, they're afraid. <laughs> I, I like that answer because it's like, they're macho and I'm not afraid of anything except for getting the vaccine. It's like, you're afraid of that, you know? You are yeah, afraid of something. And then Guillermo, the, then Guillermo said, uh, uh, it's a macho thing. He says, no, it's not. I'm macho, and I, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a macho man. <laughs> I like Guillermo. Guillermo's he's funny. Good. He's, he's really a, good. He's a character, that's for sure. Yeah, but he's, he's a nice guy. He seems really good. So today, we're doing what we often do when we don't have uh, anything to talk about. We're going back to our favorite source of content and that is Reddit. And we're going to just look at our favorite subreddit for just creating an episode on the fly, which is... Today I Learned. But I am going to actually call you back real quick because the um, Skype is not doing what I want it to, if that's okay. That's okay. Here we go. No, it didn't take long. No, it didn't, but it didn't work also. So Okay. Maybe I answered too fast. Hold on. Let me switch inputs. Okay, let me try it again. Okay. All right. It worked that time. Yay. We're in business. What? Well, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of a lot of things going on here, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things in and out and connecting and communicating and not communicating, and it, and you're kind of keeping track of all of it. Yeah. We don't have anyone doing this but you. No, but when we start, um, the image of just you, I'll show the people out there, sometimes it doesn't pick up. So the two up with us will be just fine, and then I'll go to put just you up on screen, and it's like, oh doesn't work and that's kind of frustrating but I and I don't know why that is but I also need the image of just you for this which is where we look at the internet right um, so shall we just jump into our today I hey, learned look, I'm ready okay today I learned gorillas are mostly peaceful giants preferring acts of intimidation and diplomacy over full-on violence even with rivals there have only been a handful of human attacks and even smaller number of fatal attacks mostly when they perceived human as a threat and warnings were ignored. 
Yeah, I, I can see that. I think a lot of mammals, uh, a lot of mammals do that. I mean, they will attack you if they have to. But I think sometimes animals, non-human animals, are smarter than humans. Mm -hmm. They don't they don't attack you for no reason. They they attack you for a reason. Now he's talking about silverback gorillas, though. I think with chimpanzees, that's different. Well, I think I don't know. I, I think there's a I think there's an element of of this in, in all animals. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Because I think uh, chimpanzees will attack you uh, probably faster than these gorillas, but but a lot of times chimpanzees they're just they've been cooped up. They're in a cage. They don't want to be there. You know, mm -hmm. they want to get out. They're angry. But I mean, in the wild, chimpanzees they'll have like full on wars with other chimpanzee tribes. Oh, you know, they? they're they're much more aggressive than gorillas. Oh, gorillas sort oh. of run like a harem. You know, that'll be like a alpha male and like couple of females and the kids and they'll run in their little family units and if they encounter another alpha male and the female and the kids they'll decide do i just try to beat this guy up and take his women or do we just leave well enough alone and a lot of times they'll just leave well enough alone uh chimpanzees are different they're organized into tribes uh and they'll fight each other to the death they'll have wars and they'll slaughter everyone but the women and the children wow and I think that's the only reason why chimpanzees are much more violent and aggressive and tribal. It's probably because they're more genetically closely related to us. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. But I know dogs are not that way, and cats are not that way, and horses are not that way. So a lot of animals are not that way, but I guess some are. Mm -hmm. Well, the dog pack, they hunt in packs. Yeah, but they'll hunt for food. They won't just go around killing other attacking dogs. people. Yeah. Okay, let's keep this okay. going. Today I learned yeah. that Henry VIII was sometimes called Old Copper Nose. He issued debased coins to fund wars, and one coin was mostly copper with a thin layer of silver on top. The coin had a portrait of Henry, and his projecting nose caused the silver to wear off first, exposing the copper underneath. <laughs> yeah, I guess back then the copper was uh, cheaper than silver. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that the whole upshot of this? Yeah, so... The coins, they actually had to have intrinsic value in the late 1500s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me just, I'm going to mute myself because I'm about to cough. But the, but the thing of it is, from if, if copper was cheaper than silver, and then it would wear off and his nose was copper, I guess the implication was, well, here's Henry VIII, but on the outside is silver, on the inside is copper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That may be the the uh, the insinuation. Like inside is cheap. Mm -hmm. Outside it's all show. But also, you're you think you're getting a gram of silver, and you're getting a gram of copper. Mm hmm. Yep. Well, you know, think uh, things don't change that much. Nope. Because you're buying stuff. Well, I know. You'll buy. Um, my GMC pickup, my 79 GMC pickup, it's still running. Mm -hmm. They made him to last forever. They're great. They're great. But you could buy a car today, uh, and it's coming. It's going to go. Telephones back in the 50s and 60s were made to last forever. Today, these cell phones pretty much break, and you have to get a new one. Yeah, I, they also slow down the software, so you're not just buying the device. That's true. That's true. They're changing the, the, uh, the, the connection and everything. Well... 
you know, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago on the global semiconductor shortage. Correct. And yep. the shortage of display driver semiconductors, according to a Bloomberg article, uh, might be responsible for $11 billion in halted production in the automotive industry this year. And the thing is, you can't make cars unless you have these semiconductors. But if you take a look at your 79 GMC, you can make cars without semiconductors because they've done it. But you That's get right. to the point where you integrate it into your system and it's like, nope, we can't do it without it. It's, so it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Once you start using technology, it's tough to stop. But then, of course, if you can't source the technology, you can't make the cars. If that semiconductor breaks down, if that semiconductor has a 15-year lifespan and it breaks down, that's an issue you have to fix. And, of course, your car is 42 years old now, mm-hmm. your truck. And, yeah, you've replaced the clutch, but not the engine, not the drivetrain. All that stuff is still good. So if there were semiconductors, maybe the car wouldn't work now because of the semiconductors. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that the fact that you could make a car without semiconductors proves they're not completely essential to the operation of a car. That's right. Or at least at, in history, they haven't been. They are now. Well, you, uh, another podcast you mentioned uh, the uh, the phrase convenience. People will give up a lot for convenience. Mm-hmm. They'll also give a lot up for features. Yeah. I want, I want this feature and that feature. Can you live without it? Yeah, but I want it. So it's not what they need. It's what they want. And, uh, and so you have the features in these automobiles and, uh, for, for convenience. Well, I see my friends, they get new cars and they say, check this out, check this out. And they don't open the hood. They go into the cabin of the car and then they show me there's a tablet in the dashboard that you can touch. It's like, you know, and like, isn't that awesome? And I'm like, well, you know, Apple did an event yesterday and they said, we're going to release a new iPad. It's going to have our M1 chip in it. It's going to be 100 times more powerful than the iPad first generation. Well, the iPad first generation came out 12 years ago or something. Let me see. Uh, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to Google it. So, yeah, 11 years ago. 2010, wow. So... That tablet in your car, it's not going to be easy to take out and replace with another tablet. So in 10 years, and you just bought a new car, so your new car should last 10 years. You're going to have an iPad 1 sitting on your dashboard, and they're going to be on (laughs) iPad 13 or whatever. Um, Technology, like that technology is going to progress much faster than automobile technology. So that's going to look outdated. The software is going to be clunky. It's going to be difficult to use in 10 years. It's, I just find it fascinating that people, and then people will point to their, oh, look at this tablet they put in my dashboard. That's why I bought the car. It's like, that's a bad reason to buy a car. <laughs> you're dating your car. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing of it is, is that, uh, yeah, you're right. The reason they, they think that's cool is because of the feature. But that feature is what will change faster than anything. Yes. I remember when I bought my GMC, uh, actually it was used. I had 500 miles on it in Santa Fe, and I went in there to the, to the dealer. He said, well, we do have this used car. And so he, he said, oh, okay. And it was nice. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. 
And he says, there's 500 miles, but you know, it doesn't have a radio. You probably don't want it. I go, hey, uh, I don't want a radio. It's just another thing to break. I just want, I just want a car, a truck that's going to last. It's going to work hard and not give up on me. And 42 years later, it's still going, mm -hmm. still going strong. I like how we got on this conversation from Henry VIII issuing coins made out of <laughs> copper covered in silver. Yeah, because the outside is silver and the inside is copper and his nose came through. Hey, it reveals the inside copper, inside cheap stuff. Well, hey, my, my GMC on the outside is just the opposite. Mm -hmm. On the outside, well, David, it has class. It's old, it's rusty, but on the inside, it's golden. Yep. And it just keeps on going. Actually, when you have a, here in Colorado, if you have a, a snowstorm and it's really cold, like 10 degrees below zero, 15 degrees below zero. I haven't had that in a while, but when we have, uh, my cars wouldn't start, but my GMC would pick up wood. That's awesome. And I, I went around and it would, uh, I would uh, take people places that need to go places or yep. need to get to work. We've been having unannounced snowstorms all over the place. We got this guy, <laughs> Dave Frazier. He's our meteorologist. He has no idea what he's talking about. He's not that bad. <laughs> He's pretty good, but but he's a weatherman. So what happens is, is when you have anything in the weather that you don't like, you always have someone you can blame. Mm -hmm. I hate that guy. All right, moving on. Today I learned scientists hacked the genetic code of brewer's yeast to produce cannabis compounds. They inserted genes from cannabis plants into the yeast genetics code, which allowed it to produce CBD and THC. Their end goal is to allow large-scale cannabinoid production without cultivation. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Like you make a bread with this weed yeast? Yeah. Yeah. And the bread will get you high? So now we got a large-scale... Yeah, but see, that's really dangerous. And uh, I wonder if it looks like bread. If it looks like... If it's you can slip it in there, you don't know it, and all of a sudden you get high. I don't know if it's dangerous. I mean, no, but you don't, you you don't want to. If you you should have a choice to be high or not be high. Yeah, well, I think you will. I mean, it's a controlled substance still. You know, still federally controlled. It's like you could crush up uh, Percocet and put it in your yogurt. It's like, oh, you can? Well, they, I don't think that they should sell you yogurt with Percocet. They don't. It's a controlled substance. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. But but it's going to be very similar. It's going to, it's going to look like uh, when, they, when they make it with yeast and they grow the stuff, then you can grow it. But when it's easy to grow and large-scale production, it's going to be everywhere. Uh, how, how controlled is it if it's everywhere? So we'll see. But that's very interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Today I learned that there are parts of the U.S. in which adult illiteracy is over 30%. Yep. We call, wow. those, we call those places the red states. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Let's take a look at the article. Oh. I think the first step in solving illiteracy is not paywalling your articles. Librarygournal.com. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they don't want people to read. Oh, it's a journal. Well, They're anyway. trying to make money. I understand, but it's just 
Yeah, I understand too, but still. Honestly, it's like we pay people, we pay editors, we pay for website hosting, and people come to the website, and this is the product. And so they should pay for the product, and it's like I go there, and I'm like, this should be free. They should be selling me library journal merch. (laughs) You know, they should should be making money off their brand, not off the – the content, if that makes sense. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but what they could do, you know, if they have a title and then you have to pay for the article, mm-hmm. why not have a title and an abstract? You know, like a like an abstract of exactly what it is, so you can, you get the gist of it. If you want all the details, you can pay for the article. Yeah. That, that to me, that seems like yeah, we want you to know this, but it's kind of like a teaser or a trailer. You just say, okay, well, here's here's the abstract. And then uh, hopefully people want to know more. Some people don't want to know more. Some people do want to know more. So they're selecting out their audience. Yeah. I I understand, though. It's it's just difficult to run an online publication and make money off of it. Yeah, it is. Um, And that is an issue before we move on to the next one. That's an issue, I think, with journals. A lot of times they'll publish an article that has headline factor so that they'll get in the news. Oh, according to a recent study in the International Journal of this and that, you know, marsupials have a hundred orgasms a day or whatever. And it's like, that's a headline grabbing title, but it's like, like they chose that article because they knew it might get in the, in the news, not because it's the most, a uh, valid piece of scholarship done in that area. Do you see what I'm saying? They'll, like a headline-grabbing title, they'll choose. And then you go, like, oh, I want to read that article. It's like, oh, you have to pay? Oh, never mind. But people are aware of the journal at that point. That's true. That's true. So the title is kind of like their, their mini abstract. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a problem, too, with... Uh, there's. Did you hear about the Stanford study I about COVID-19 and face mask wearing? Nope. It was twi- trending on Twitter yesterday. I'll try to find it real quick. Stanford face mask. Okay. Voice of America. Stanford. So it was widely circulated on like Facebook or wherever people get fake news. And a Stanford study has said that face masks, masks are worthless and they make it hard for you to breathe. And it got reach. It went around the world. Hundreds of millions of shares. And Stanford had to come out and say, this isn't our study. This isn't affiliated with our university. The person who wrote this study isn't affiliated with our university. But, of course, that becomes the story that you could find. You know, they disavow this study, claiming masks are worthless. But by the time, uh, it's like the Mark Twain quote, a story can make its way around the world by the time a retraction puts on its boots. That's his quote. So uh, so now the people that are inclined to believe that masks are worthless have heard that even Stanford says masks are worthless. And they're not going to take the time to read the retraction or disavowal. It's not even a retraction. Stanford didn't say it. Someone attributed it to them, and they have to disavow it. But people will believe it if they're inclined to believe that. Well, who, who wrote it? Who, who did, had the article? Um, let's see. It was published in the Journal of Medical Hypotheses, which obviously does not sound like there's any research. Um, 
Bruce Vainshelboim. Is there a journal of medical hypotheses? Let me, I'll Google that. Yeah. Um, Vain Shell Boehm's credits are cited as Cardiology Division, Veterans Affairs, Palo Alto, Healthcare System, Stanford University. But Stanford's statement says the description is inaccurate. Stanford says Vain Shell Boehm has no affiliation with the school at the time of the publication, and his only affiliation was a one-year term as a visiting scholar on matters unrelated to the paper. Okay, so there is a connection there. He has a doctorate from the University of Porto in Portugal. He's a clinical exercise physiologist. Well, the thing is, I could I could take a Stanford online class and then say, you know, new evidence says that eating grapefruit will cure coronavirus. I'm a Stanford scientist because I took a Stanford online class. And that, that doesn't yeah. make it true. And that doesn't make me a Stanford scientist. And it's like, oh, he's a Stanford scientist? Well, he's not really a scientist. And he took Women's History 101 on Stanford Online. But uh, <laughs> he's a political scientist that makes him some sort of scientist, right? Well, this guy, people like this guy, uh, they could they could do really well in one area and and make some progress and be recognized. And they're a visiting professor or fellow or something. They're, no, they're a visiting scholar. They, they took classes there. Oh, okay. So a visiting scholar, they went, I see. He, I mean, he managed I, I to... I was reading something else. Yeah, so his credentials in the article are cited. Cardiology Division, Veteran Affairs, Palo Alto Health Care System, Stanford University. Well, he has no affiliation with the school. His only affiliation was a one-year term as a visiting scholar, not as a visiting professor. He was there studying. Yeah. And, and he was a scholar on matters unrelated to the paper. So to cite him as cardiology division, veterans affairs, Palo Alto Healthcare System slash Stanford University, and he says masks are useless. Uh, he identifies himself in his LinkedIn profile as a clinic, clinical exercise physiologist. So that's different than the cardiology division, Stanford. Yeah. And where do you think this has been circulating? Right-wing websites. <laughs> yeah. Including the Gateway Pundit, California Globe. Wow. And it's been shared on Facebook and Twitter, including by Ohio Republican U.S. Senate candidate Josh Mandel. Oh, wow. I mean, the thing is, I read that book that you gave me, Like War, about fake news. Yes. And there's this group of kids. They're from some Eastern European country. I'm going to mess it up. Latvia. They're maybe a Baltic state. Estonia, maybe. And they learned in 2015, 2016, you put up these sites. So they, you know, WordPress. Like, you know, we use WordPress for our Talking Leaf uh, stuff. And then mm -hmm. you publish articles you know like realnews.com or whatever you know um like truth truthinmedia.com and then you publish articles and they're you just publish lies about hillary clinton 
and then you get a group of 10 or 15 people on Facebook to share the article, and then it picks up steam and you get a snowball effect, and your article will get hundreds of thousands or millions of clicks, and the advertisements on the page get click-throughs, and they had a little cottage industry. They were supporting 10 people, and they were just churning out articles, and they're like, okay, well, we said that Hillary did this, and we got $10,000. If we make an even more outrageous claim, will we get $12,000? And so they were testing in real time, and their metric wasn't let's publish stories that are the truth. It's what stories can we make up that get the most traction on social media that bring in the most revenue for us? So that's literally fake news. You get people's opinion, then you make up facts to support that opinion, and mm-hmm. you know they're going to go after it. It's human nature. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's not necessarily the most outrageous thing. Your, your paradigm, you're optimizing for your, your revenue. So you're going to tell different types of lies that get shared more. It's not the most outrageous lie. You're not going for that. You're going for which lie will get the most shares. Right. It's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, and it's fast. Yeah. Well, this is that's this is quite the, that's quite the story. It's concerning, isn't it? It is concerning. Anyone could just say, "Oh, I'm Stanford." Let's look at a good but, story. But, but the concerning about that, David, to me, again, to get back to the same type of thesis, it's not so much that that people will do that because people will do that. The concerning part is the large percentage of Americans who will believe those things without really fact finding uh-huh. looking at the looking at the facts that that's troubling that it's not that Americans are illiterate or, or is it they don't they will follow lies mm-hmm. and I, I guess it needs to be more of an integrity integrity of information integrity of, of a character to say is this true or not and what part of it is true, what part of it is not true, how much it is true, how much it is not true. To me, that's just integrity. And that's that's the lack of integrity of American who t- people don't do that. Mm-hmm. They can they can take a lie and just run with a lie. And uh, I just don't like that. Uh, and I think that that's an indictment uh, on on America, on Americans, on mm-hmm. people. That that's the problem I see. Uh, okay. Ready to go on? Let's move on. A good story. Today I learned NASA's longest-serving female employee since January 1958, Sue Finley, has been an engineer and programmer for space missions since Explorer 1 for missions to the moon, sun, all the planets, and many other solar system bodies, and recipient of NASA's Exceptional Public Service Medal. Way to go, Sue! Good job, Sue. Good job, Sue. Congratulations. Yay. Yay, Sue. Now, like now, that, now, see, that's an American. That's the kind of Americans we want in here. We want people, whether you're at NASA or whether you're wherever you are working, uh, you're going to be honest, you're going to be working hard, and you're going to do a good job, and you're not going to stop, and you're going to have integrity in everything you do. Yeah, so if Sue wrote a paper... She could rightfully put at the bottom NASA engineer because she's been there since 1958 as an engineer, a programmer, and sent probes to all the bodies in the solar system. Now, even the sun, even the sun. Now, I went to Cape Canaveral as a six year old and I toured Cape Canaveral. I can't write NASA engineer at the bottom of one of my papers. 
<laughs> right? Good point, David. Very good point. I say I'm a NASA engineer and mask mandates don't work. And people that want mask mandates not to work will say, look at it. This guy's a NASA engineer and he says it. And it's like, did you check to see if he's a NASA engineer? Okay. I, that just the, the Stanford thing pisses me off, okay? Moving on. Today I learned the man in the iron mask, a mysterious person arrested in 1669 who died captive in the Bastille after 34 years. The prisoner had got their title from the mask that they had to wear at all times, making the identity of the person wearing the mask forever unknown, even after death. They made a movie about that, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe I've heard it. I didn't see it. That's interesting. Leonardo DiCaprio. Let's take a look. I, 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 don't, I don't remember that story. He, he, they forced him to wear an iron mask because they don't want people to know who he is. Yeah. 1998 film. See, Leonardo DiCaprio. Did you see the film? I did. I don't remember it. Plot. The Kingdom of France faces bankruptcy. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't. I've heard of that phrase. I didn't know it was a movie. Apparently it did huh. pretty well. Thirty-five million budget, one hundred eighty-three at the box office. Yep, that's an interesting story. Uh huh. Back, back in the seventeenth century, sixteen sixty, whatever, sixteen sixty-nine. I thought it was yeah, but if you look, it's uh, the Three Musketeers: Aramis, Athos, Porthos, and D'Artagnan. So it's like Three Musketeers, and then I don't know if the Man of the Iron Mask was real. Oh, yeah. The Man of the Iron Mask was real, or at least according to Wikipedia. Well, whatever. Too bad for him, but you know what? He died so long ago. Shout out to his family, right? Yeah, captive in the Bastille for 34 years. Wow. That's too, that's sad. Today, okay. I not everyone can unfocus their eyes whenever they want to. It's accomplished by having the ability to relax ciliary muscles in your eyes, which causes them to lose their focusing power. Huh. So some people just don't have that skill. I wonder, I wonder if people have the skill to lose their focus. Because I, I know I can look at it, then I can just... Move my eyes somehow, make it fuzzy, and then bring it back. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I think most people can. So since not everyone can, are those the type of people that can't see the 3D magic uh, art? Yeah. You know how some people, no matter how hard they try, they can't see the magic eye stuff? Yeah. Magic eye, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, like that Yeah, like that stuff. Yeah, they, yeah. Can't, they can't see it. Yeah, you can't see it no matter how hard you try because you can't relax your ciliary muscles and that's how you see it. Yeah, maybe. Hey. How about that? Today I learned about token suckers. Back when New York City subway system used tokens, people called token suckers would jam token slots with paper and suck out the tokens with their mouth. To prevent this, some attendants would sprinkle chili powder in the slots. <laughs> I didn't know that. They could suck out the tokens out of the machines. I guess so. I, you know what? Sounds I weird. would rather have a mouthful of chili powder 
than a subway token someone's been carrying around in my mouth. Or someone picked up off the dirty, dirty Yeah, subway. it was lying in dog poop. Yeah, it was, who that. knows where it was? <laughs> Very good point, David. I'd rather, I'd rather have the chili powder than, than the dirty old uh, uh, token. Yeah, it's from the dis- subway. It's disgusting. Subway tokens <laughs> it turns my stomach. Wow, the disgusting crime. Subway token suckers, uh, token suckers. Oh, I'm sure you can take that term, a token sucker, and you can apply that to different things, right? Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Well, oh yeah. What they're doing there is is a token sucker. You know. Token sucker. Today I learned the king's doctor, Johann Strunzi, seized power for over a year in 18th century Denmark. He managed to abolish slavery, abolish censorship of the press, and have an affair with the queen before being ousted and executed in 1772. Oh, good grief. Wow. He was busy. Yeah, he, he was busy, and he was busy all over the place. The king's doctor. And he had an affair with the queen. Oops. Good for him. <laughs> More power to him. Well, he got some. See, he 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 got some good stuff done, and then he screwed up, and then all of a sudden it's gone. But does that does that mean the good stuff was not good? Mm-hmm. Abolish slavery, and what was the other thing? Abolish slavery, uh, establish freedom of the press. See, that was good. At least, at least in our in our view, it's good. Mm-hmm. Having. Yeah, screwing around with the queen isn't wouldn't that a smart idea. No, but maybe that's the reason why he was able to seize power. Yeah, maybe. You know, the maybe. king is incapacitated, and they say, no, only the doctor can see the king. And then the queen is basically ruling th- through the doctor's edicts because the doctor's, you know, keeping right. the king incapacitated. And, like, the doctor can control the queen by virtue of a fair. And that's how he sees power. And that's how he got good things done, uh-huh. having an affair. Uh, but it's also his demise. Sometimes so, you got to do what's wrong to do what's right, right? Sometimes you got to break the rules <laughs> to do what's right. That guy really broke the rules. Okay. Yeah. But he did some good stuff. Today I learned cannabis is invasive in North America, referred to as feral cannabis, wild marijuana, and ditch weed when it grows in the wild. Seeds can lie dormant for seven to ten years, and the wild plant can damage farm equipment. Feral cannabis is cultivated in North Korea. Hmm. Yep. I did not know that. Nope. Um, so we just had 420 here in Colorado, and I think it's been about ten years since we legalized marijuana. And what's crazy is 2014. So it passed in 2012. So it was 11 years since it passed. Uh, January 2014. Seven years since it's been legal. Um, the interesting thing to me about it is we said, we were the first, obviously, because we're Colorado. And we said, yeah, let's just legalize it for recreational purposes. And then we did. And there was a weed boom here. People made fortunes. And then it sort of became more of just the standard normalized industry. And the state of Colorado was earning tax revenue off of it. And all these other states said, wait, you legalized weed and your society didn't crumble. 
all you did was just establish a brand new industry that's taxable. Like there's, I mean, people don't beat their wives because they had one too many hits of weed, but they do because they had one too many Budweiser's. Like, so it seems like weed is less harmful to society. So now 26 states have followed our lead in the intervening seven years. And you think, man, maybe this should have been the policy all along. Fascinating, huh? And I saw Ed Perlmutter on Twitter. Ed Perlmutter is our U.S. House of Representatives representative advocating for marijuana industry people to be allowed to use the banks because due to its Schedule One narcotic status in federal law, marijuana facilities since 2014 have operated solely in cash. I had a buddy who used to work for Brinks as an armored car driver, and he said, yeah, we just take the receipts from we take bags of cash from the dispensary and we just store it in a corner and it's like we're their banker like we store in a corner a hundred thousand dollars in cash and that's the dispensary's bank account because they can't put it into a bank fascinating huh yeah yeah and so he's saying you know marijuana is here to stay over half the states have legalized it it's time for us to allow marijuana businesses to operate within the banking system because A, it'll increase accountability. B, it's not a scourge. It, like no one's gonna die because they smoked wheat. It's, and I think that it's one of those things where you can have a slippery slope argument. You know, like, oh, you legalize marijuana, there's gonna be, you know, an uptick in everything else. And that's fear mongering. That's not true. Because we are seven years into an experiment and we've, we've proved it's not true. Well, I think Ed Perlmutter, uh, congressman, uh, representative, I think he's he's on the right track. I think he's smart. He's a good guy. He, mm-hmm. he, he I think that's what needs to be done. And he's progressive. He says it's time to do this. And it's time to move forward. And it's time to get the benefits uh, to, uh, to the American people. Yeah. Well, I mean, because he in, cares. The industry yeah. has proved its legitimacy. It's proved its relative lack of danger to society. And now it's time to afford it by virtue of the tax revenues that it's bringing in for the state, by virtue of the tourism that it's brought to Colorado. There's been, there was a lot of weed tourism in the early years. Um, by virtue of all these things that it's brought, all these benefits, it's, it's time to say we should let them use a bank to hold their money. That's, and it, it's not radical. I think it's just obvious. It is obvious. Yeah. And I, I think I think Ed is he sees it. Mm-hmm. He, he understands it. He sees it. He's doing what needs to be done. And, and I'm, I'm so glad we have people like that in Washington who is practical, who is see this needs to be done mm-hmm. and instead of running after rabbits and rabbit holes. Yeah. Well, also, this shouldn't really be a partisan issue. I mean, no. it, it will end up everything will end up being a partisan issue, but. I don't, some things aren't like the sex trafficking laws when they made them harsher. I think the only person that voted against them is the guy that's currently accused of sex trafficking. So he had a different uh, decision calculus probably than the rest of the congressmen when he voted against it and they all voted for it across both party lines. Yeah, he could probably make up an argument that's for his. For, for his position. Yeah, he's like, let's just say you're a congressman and you sex trafficked a minor across state lines. Like, 
you don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to vote no for this. <laughs> Hypothetically. 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 Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Let's just Not say, even allegedly, just hypothetically. Let's just say for but the sake of argument that you're a <laughs> Florida congressman, your dad is rich, and you've sex trafficked people. Well, you're going to vote no for the sex trafficking bill, hypothetically. <laughs> uh, let's say your name rhymes with Bates. <laughs> strong, just a, just a straw man argument. Is You're all a hypothetical white guy from Florida whose name rhymes with Bates. Okay. I think you're moving into out of, <laughs> out of hypothetical territory there, David. Okay. Today I learned that as Bangladesh Liberation War neared its end, a final effort was made by Pakistan to kill as many intellectuals as possible to eliminate the future leaders of a new nation of Bangladesh. Well, that's awful depressing. They, yeah, but those kinds of those kinds of things though has ha have happened before. Mm -hmm. That's a very common thing that you want to eliminate uh, the intellectuals so that you can have more control of the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you start thinking of that, uh, you can eliminate intellectuals in a lot of different ways. I mean, you can kill them, but also you can neutralize their ability to vote. You can do a lot of things. Offer them jobs in a different geographic uh, location. And move them out of the area and whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things you can do. You can put them on the front lines of, uh, of the military uh, and, and, and create a war and then put them on the front lines. And This was their enemy. I think Pakistan was fighting Bangladesh. Mm. So they're about to pull out of the war, but they said, before we leave, oops, let's try to kill as many intellectuals as possible. Right. So that, so that their country won't go forward. Mm -hmm. But my my point is, is that when people take over a country, that's one thing they do because they want to keep hold of that country. They, they did that just so the country wouldn't well, it would be hard to move forward. But other people have done that when they move into a country too. It's almost as if promoting anti-intellectualism is about securing power for the current leader and not about making the nation great again. That's very true. So if someone Very really true. wants to make America great again, they would really promote science and and intellectual curiosity, right? That's a very legitimate argument and a line, a line of logic that makes perfect sense. And what's the alternative? If they, if they do not want to make America great again, they will deny science. They'll deny right. intellectual curiosity. They'll deny critical thinking. That's right. And they will lie to the people. They'll make things up because they want to control them. Mm -hmm. if, if you lie to people, you don't really lead them. You use them. Yeah. Control. You're not being useful to them. You're just using them. You're using them. Well, that was a depressing today, I learned. So let's try to get a few more in before we get to an hour. I read this one. I kind of think this one's interesting. Today I learned that limping was a fad in Victorian England. Young women admired the genuine limp of Alexandra of Denmark, bride of the Prince of Wales. So women went around fake limping, dubbed the Alexandra limp. Shopkeepers at the time sold pairs of shoes with one high heel and one low. That's weird. I really think fads, you know, from Victorian England all the way up until today... Some of them are just super dumb. 
<laughs> and people uh, Victorian, were, it, was that in the 1700s? When was Victorian England? 1700s? Queen Victoria. Early. So you were looking at English history? I think it's late 1800s. Victorian limp. Yeah, 1819 Did, to 1901. I was right. Boom. Let's go. So who so who was the the Denmark guy that limped? Queen Alexandra. Oh, queen. Pr- princess. Princess Alexandra. Oh, of Denmark. She was married to the Prince of Wales. Oh. So she wasn't a princess. She was the wife of a prince. Okay. Wow. Okay. And they Did liked they liked her. Sort of like she was like if Kate Middleton had a limp and they like Kate, you know, and so everyone's or if Diane Diana Spencer had a limp. Yeah. Before she died. Because she was popular. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, the only thing dumber than limping because the wife of a prince uh, limps is the fact that they still had princes and princesses in the 19th century. I mean, we got over that in 1776. It's like, hey, it's been 100 years, guys. Like, it's a little outdated. You know, monarchy, what's the deal here? That's a stupid... Well, that, <laughs> well that's that's our view. That's our view. The, the people in those monarchies like it, and uh, they've lived with it. And, uh, and actually... I wonder if you talk to them that they will tout the value of a monarchy and and royalty. Something uh, that to believe in. But anyway, um, that's that's odd. A limp is a fad. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of odd things. Let's take a look at a magic eye <laughs> sweater. What? Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to see odd. Let's go to, oh, um, explore. Music. You would not believe some of these uh, if I showed them to you. Let's go to explore trending. These are, this is the trends of today. I spent 50 hours locked in an art show. Video games. You know, people may look back on some of these trends and be like, people cared about this. You know? You have a, you have a pictures on. Oh, oops. Um, Apple, they announced that they were going to release some new gadgets and 8.2 million people watched it. And it's like, it's just some gadgets. It's the same exact crap as last year. They just, you know, added the color purple and it's like, but 8.2 million people found it compelling enough. This guy he talks about colored iMacs. They added color to the iMac. 3 million people watched that in addition to the 8.2 that watched. And it's like, the fad of caring about the new product, it's like products have become a religion. They were almost, in, in 2021, products were almost a religion to the people that lived there. Like, you know, now that we're looking back from 2300, it seems so silly, you know, <laughs> that these antiquated devices were worthy of so much attention. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, people, people are interesting. People are odd. Yep. People are people are not necessarily logical. No, this one's interesting. 
Today I learned primatologist Jane Goodall, actor Brad Pitt, and Apple Inc. founder Steve Wozniak all suffer from prosopagnosia, or face blindness. What is face blindness? Let's take a look. Prosopagnosia. 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 Oh, there it is. Cognitive disorder. The ability to recognize familiar faces, including one's own face, is impaired. While other aspects of visual processing, intellectual functioning, remain intact. Interesting. That's crazy. Never, never heard of it. Huh. A perceptive. I like that Pros one because uh, I'm I, learning I, something. I learned something brand new. Prosopagnosia. Face yeah, I, blindness. Did, I didn't know that. From the Greek prosopon meaning face and agnosia meaning non, uh, no knowledge. Doesn't know. Like Lack of knowledge. Yeah. The cognitive disorder of face perception. Including one's own. Wow. I never, I never see that. I learned something new. I like, I like it when we do today. I learned, and we learned something like there's a thing called prosopagnosia. It exists, and it's face yeah. blindness. That's fast, fascinating. And of course, three celebrities have it. That's sort of like how you get them in the door. Did you know that these three people you've heard of have this? And it's like, oh, really? Yeah. And three people from three different areas. Uh huh. Know, but to, it looks uh, like, according to the uh, Wikipedia. And we'll take Wikipedia. It's got a prevalence of 2.5%. One out of 40 people have it. Wow. That seems like a lot, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I never... Fusiform gyrus. The specific, specific brain area usually associated with prosopagnosia is the fusiform gyrus. It sits down there, the back of their... That's where vision the back is. Of their, yeah, the, the back of their, their brain. The vision's at the back of your brain. Mm-hmm. The smell is at the top of your brain. Mm-hmm. It's called an olfactory bulb. You can see it. Oh, wait, no, you can't see it because I'm obscuring there. See that? That's your olfactory bulb. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's where your... Uh, Vision. No, that's where your smell is. Now, this is where the fusiform, whatever they called it. Fusiform gyrus. Yes. So your vision's back here. Yeah, in the back. It's interesting that your vision is the furthest away from yeah. your eyes. Yeah. And smell is at the top. Mm -hmm. And hearing is probably... Oh, isn't hearing... Something is in the middle of your brain, too. Speech. I, I, th I think speech is in the middle. Yeah, and uh, emotion. Yeah. Is like front and center. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, perception or intellect is in the front, frontal lobe. I don't know. The brain's pretty fascinating. It's really interesting, yeah. It's and got a, a lot of things have uh, been... Uh, observed about it mm -hmm. you know like uh like there's a podcast uh, on the, there's the hidden brain i like that show i do too it's very interesting 
about the brain. So now we've learned about prosopagnosia. Uh-huh. I say we do two more. How does that sound? Sounds good. Today learned the FBI has a very specific definition for serial killer. This is a good one to end on. Someone who has <laughs> intentionally killed at least three people, but not all at once, and there must be so-called cooling off periods between each murder. So yeah. they can't they can't stay away from it. They'll go back to it. Yeah, so I think it's like if you kill someone and then you drive somewhere and you kill someone else and you drive somewhere and kill someone else, that is three separate events, but there's no cooling off period. That would be more like a mass murder, even though it didn't all occur in one place. Right. Or like a thrill killing. I think that they used to call it that. Mm. Where you go on a killing spree and then you get caught as a thrill killing. But you might go on a killing spree and then stop killing. Then you're not a serial killer. But if a year or two later you say, I want to go on another killing spree, then you're a serial killer. And you do it twice. Yeah. You go back twice to kill three. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah, well, that's unfortunate that that stuff happens. But Mm -hmm. there again, people are uh, all different people out there. My question is this. Okay. You had Jack the Ripper, uh, Herman Mudgett, H.H. Holmes, famous, famous they're the OG serial killers. And we know about them. But we also know, I think that, who is it? There's a comedian that's like, one thing I learned from watching these CSI shows is it would have been really easy to kill someone before they had DNA evidence. So you sort of wonder how many serial killers got away with it. Oh, I, before the DNA, before science and forensics, there were a lot of deaths yes there's a lot of deaths with you know just normal causes they don't know so the thing about serial killers is they become sort of you understand that they're not cultural they come and i don't want to say like they're icons but you know the name of jeffrey dahmer you know the name of david berkowitz the son of sam you know the name of richard ramirez the night stalker so they become or ted bundy sort of celebrities you see what i'm saying like, you know who they are. They, they have notoriety, I guess. That's the best way to say it. I don't want to say, like, they're celebrities. They're, they're, they're notorious. But you know their names. Now, I feel like a century before that, and that's all mid-20th century. You know, that's 1960s to 1990s. Uh, before that, you have the 1800s, and you have your Herman Mudgets, and maybe your Jack the Ripper. I don't know when Jack the Ripper was. It Was that 19th century? I think it was. It was Victorian England. Yeah, Jack the Ripper. Now, my question is, yeah, 1888. Uh, uh, I didn't show it, but my question is, in the 1700s, did you have serial killers in the cities? But no one knew about it. You know, because in the 1700s, the life expectancy might have been closer to 50 or, you know, and like people die for all sorts of crazy reasons. and And so... The only time they sort of make their way into uh, the consciousness of the public is beginning in the 19th century. I don't know. I think uh, 1700s, 1600s, I think also possibly, I don't know, this is very hypothetical, that murder, homicide, uh, people wouldn't try to investigate it. Mm -hmm. It's just, oh... That's really sad. And then they move on. Yeah. Well, today, they're going to try to find the person. They're, they're, they're hell-bent on finding who did this. Mm-hmm. I think hundreds of years ago, 
They just will never know, and they wouldn't even try. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. The interesting well, thing... For, for example, I remember, uh, you know, Lewis and Clark, uh, the expeditions in the, the West, which the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I heard a documentary, it popped in my head, a documentary on uh, Meriwether Mary, Mary Lewis, that he was with a companion coming back, I think it was Missouri, and uh, he stopped at this, uh, they stopped uh, at a uh, a place to sleep. And he did, and Meriwether Lewis didn't want to stop there. He said, no, no, we don't want to do this. And so his companion says, no, we have to stop, we have to stop. So he forced him to stop. When they went in there, it was a very, very shady place. And so Meriwether Lewis says, I do not want to do this. I want to move on. Let's move on. I don't want to stay here. I don't. I feel very uncomfortable. And, and they didn't. They stayed there. Well, he died. And he was murdered, and uh, and I, he was a really good friend of uh, uh, the pre- uh, President Lincoln. Jefferson. Anyway, when they, I mean Jefferson, when they went back to um, investigate, there was a trial, uh, but then all the testimony, the trial says, no, no, he was just crazy, committed suicide. Well, they, they when they look back a look at it uh, today, they go, there's no way he committed suicide, and some of the testimony was people who w- weren't even there. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's so little ability to find the person that they just let it go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when you had things happen of people of not not of notoriety, uh, there was no way of, of finding out who did it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why uh, it happened a lot more then than it does now. Yeah. I, have you really heard, you know, Je- yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer and then they caught the BTK killer. Um, using forensic genealogy. I think they they narrowed down who he was based upon like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. And they're like, oh, this person, because they have DNA from the BTK cases. They say, this person's a first cousin of the BTK killer. And so let's take a look at their family tree. Well, there's three people that could potentially be in the right age group to be the BTK killer. And this one is the only one that lives in the right area. So I think we found it, you know, based upon forensics genealogy. Um, well, he was the last one that I heard of. That was five, ten years ago. It seems like, you know, you got your Ted Bundys, your John Wayne Gacy's, your um, Jeffrey Dahmer's. It was more prevalent prior to DNA evidence. I think you're seeing fewer and fewer serial killers. Uh and the, like the last one that you have, he perpetrated his murders in the 80s and 90s, or 70s and 80s and 90s, and then he got caught 20 years later by DNA evidence. So maybe the, the threat of being caught is a deterrent to these serial killers, or maybe they never get to be serial killers because they get caught after their first murder. Yeah, very, that's, that's a very good point. That's right. And I think a, ser- a serial, serial killer who is intelligent, well, they're all smart, but uh, well, are disciplined to learn how they would get caught. They can figure out how to do it and not get caught. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot. In other words, uh, who is a ser- serial killer? Is it someone who is just has to do it, not even think about the consequences? Or someone says, oh, I'm going to do this. It's premeditated. I'm going to figure this out. And find out exactly how to do this where there's no way they can catch me. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get that that happening too. Because they know how they got caught. Yeah. 
And, but before they had the ability to catch them, I think you're right. There's going to be more of them because those people say, well, I can do it and I get caught. Yeah. And the way you do it, there's a lot of ways to do that. And I get caught probably. And uh, so people figure that out and they're going to do it. Uh, well, we're at an hour. No better lighter note to end a <laughs> podcast on than talking about serial killers. Serial killers. Yeah, we could probably. Well, we talked about prosopagnosia. That was cool. That was really cool. That was in, that was uh, today I learned, but also that was interesting that I did not know that existed. Never heard that term before. Face blindness. You think like, oh, I'm blind in my face. No, you're blind to recognize faces. Yeah. Okay, I got one more. We can end on not serial killers. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Today I learned as a result of M. Rust, which is some guy, flying a Cessna from Finland through the USSR's most secure airspace and landing in Red Square. The Soviet military had its largest purge of officers since the Stalin's Great Purge. And as a result, Gorbachev was able to implement reforms easier with much of the old guard gone. Oh, wow. So some Finnish guy, M. Rust, I'm sure that's his name, Matthias Rust. He's Born known for his flight that ended landing near Red Square in Moscow in May 1987. Wow. That's fascinating, don't you think? Yeah, well, you know, you can you can, you can avoid radar by, by flying low. Yeah, and in a Cessna, it's a little plane. Um, it's a little bit plane. But still. He did it. He did it. And the thing is, look at the balls on this guy. Landing in Red Square in Soviet <laughs> Russia in 1987. Look at this flight yeah. path. Moscow. He went. I, I, can't, I can't see it. Our hell, our. Pictures are in the way. Let me get rid of our pictures. He went to, uh, from Helsinki, straight through Russia, right to Moscow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he did all that in a Cessna? In a Cessna. Wow. That's a small plane. That's crazy. That's a, yeah, that's a gutsy kind of guy. Way to be Matthias. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. And that was back, when was that? What year was that? 87. Gorbachev, 87. Yeah, look at there. Six, six, he was born in 68, 87. He was, what? 68, Nin- 78, 88. He's he 19 was years 19, old. He was 19 years old. He was too dumb to know better. He spent 14. I started to say, did he know what he was doing? <laughs> he spent 14 months in prison. He was pardoned by, by someone. By Gromyko, the chairman of the Soviet party. And released. Well, I think he did his. Well, you can you can you can argue he did a service. He did a, did did a service to Russia and the Russian military. Like he identified uh, a, a a clink in their armor. Rust, you know? aged eighteen, was an inexperienced pilot with about fifty hours of flying experience at the time of his flight. Oh my goodness. Oh wow, that's about that's about how old I was when I was flying. Uh huh. I fly, I didn't fly Cessnas. I flew Cherokees. Disappeared from Finnish air air traffic radar near Espoo. Espoo. He probably flew low. Wow, that that's a good story. 
That's a good story. I know you should. Yeah, you say, hey, he, uh, there was no malice intent. He's a kid. He just did it, and he didn't think about maybe what he was doing. But it was it instigated uh, uh, tighten up security of the Russian military. So it probably give it uh, provide a service to them. Yeah, it's but also, I mean, according to this blurb, um, a lot of officers got purged. And Gorbachev was able to get reforms done easier. So That's this true. guy, I can't believe this isn't a movie. That's right. This guy, right. Matthias Rust, he's probably still alive today. Yeah, he ended. He is. It said it, that he is. He ended the Cold War single-handedly. It wasn't Reagan. It was Matthias Rust. Yeah, there, there should be a movie about this. They really should. Oh, so he's a German aviator. That's why he took off in Hamburg Uthersen. Okay. He, he flew to the Faroe Islands, yeah. then Iceland, then Bergen, and then Helsinki, then Moscow. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably coming from the west, the northwest. Uh, and notice how the, the from Helsinki to Moscow, uh, that line is all squiggly. Mm-hmm. He probably flew low in in between the mountains. He might have, yeah, he might have seen some stuff that he had to avoid. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, so he, he was not, uh, he was young and brash, and he did it. Mm-hmm. Way to go, Matthias. Oh, wow. Now, I don't know much about flying. You said you flew when you were younger. This seems like a pretty ballsy route to take for someone with 50 hours of flighting experience. I wouldn't have done it. You, I, go, out, yeah. you go out here, like by the North Sea, um, and you find the Faroe Islands. You, you know, this is 1987. It's not like you have GPS. It's like, I'm going to just fly through the North Sea, and hopefully I get to the Faroe Islands. Well, I was flying in the 60s, and you didn't have GPS. Yeah. You all you, you, you had radar. I mean, you had uh, uh, communications. But all you had was your 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 uh, azimuth, and you had your time. Mm-hmm. And you knew what the azimuth had to be, and you just had to fly in that direction. And, okay, in and, and three hours, I should be here. But that's really gutsy to do that. Way to be, Matthias, man. He just decided, but there was, he did have more control back then, probably in the 80s. Yeah. Keflavik, wow. Still, it doesn't mean that that was a ballsy move. Do you think that he was too too young to realize how dumb it was? A little bit. I think a little bit. I think he said, I want to try this. I want to do this. I can do it. I can do it. I think there was a little bit of the the bravery and the uh, brashness of youth, I think. That's what I would say. But nevertheless, he did it, for crying out loud. That, that is really, that's really cool. That's a great story, David. William Odom, former directory, director of the National Security Agency and author of The Collapse of the Soviet Military, says that Rust flight irreparably damaged the reputation of the Soviet military. This enabled Gorbachev to remove many of the strongest opponents to his reforms. Wow, he that, just demonstrated. That is so... That's neat. Oh, the plane is on exhibit in Berlin. Oh, wow. I'd like to see that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. I wonder what Matthias is doing today. Yeah, who knows? Let's find out. I think that they might have aftermath. He spent 14 months. Gorbachev Later released life. him. 
Russ stabbed a female co-worker who had rejected him. Yikes, dog. Maybe he just was crazy. Well, it's, uh, maybe he was. He was convicted the, 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 for... He, he's survived. lived a fragmented life, describing himself as a bit of an oddball. After being released, he converted to Hinduism. Uh, this is sad. Oh, man. <laughs> Convicted of fraud. In 2009, Russ described himself as a professional poker player. That's sad. I wish I didn't know that his life was a hodge. Like he, <laughs> it's not that he was too young to know that it was crazy. He might have just been crazy, period. He was just crazy, period. He but the crazy German. But his actions changed the world, right? That's right. Which is a good lesson, David. You know, it's a very good lesson. Uh, I had one individual that can do something that uh, you normally wouldn't do. Says that's stupid, but you do it, and you can change the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, sometimes people uh, don't do things because they don't think they should, but they'd like to. But they don't. They should just put that aside and just do it. Yes, you might just change the world. And, you know, if people say that what you're doing is crazy, but you believe in it, go for it. Go because for it. Because an 18 year old with cl clear psychological issues did more damage to the Soviet <laughs> military than hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. spending did. <laughs> That's exactly right. In a Cessna. In a Cessna. He didn't need an F 16. He didn't need no. an F 16. He didn't need a B 2. He needed no. a Cessna. He, just an 18-year-old kid in a Cessna, did more <laughs> than the U.S. military in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, be, before, and remember, that's before, the, that's the, uh, uh, the that was a, during the Cold War. Yeah, still the Cold War. It's still the Cold War. And, uh, wow, see? That right there should be the the head, the the uh, tagline. I mean, that, that should be the headline. Mm -hmm. Do you think that his problematic later life is why they haven't made a movie about it? Could be. I, I think Could so, because be. everyone's an internet sleuth these days, and they say, he stabbed a woman, you know, he's a bad guy. And it's like, yeah, he didn't do this because he was a good guy. He did this because he was a crazy guy. But he changed the world. <laughs> That's the important takeaway. I I think, I still think there's a story there if you, if you tell it the right way. Mm -hmm. Don't try to glamorize him. It, it's not, it's not a glamour thing. It's because it, like our, our stories today, you know, they have to be a good guy and uh, the white hat beats the white hat cowboy beats the black hat cowboy. I don't like that. You know, maybe maybe we need to have more realism in our in our uh, our media, in our uh, not media, the uh, uh, movies and uh, our entertainment to say, yeah, he was crazy, but he did this and changed the world. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, he's crazy. But that crazy act did this. Now, what if sane people could observe and see like, well, this might be crazy, but I want to do it to change the world. He did. I don't think he did it to change the world. No. I think he did it just he did it just to say, hey, uh, I want to do this and see what happens. Or I'm just going to do this. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to I want to. Uh, it popped into his head not to change the world. He popped in his head to do something crazy because he was crazy. Yeah. But what if someone who wasn't crazy, who could see like, oh, this is bad. Well, do it anyway. 
this is not acceptable. Do it anyway. Uh, maybe uh, social norms and, and politically correct stuff. Maybe let's, let's uh, barge right through that stuff and you'd be, be surprised what will happen afterward. Mm-hmm. You may you may be in prison for 14 months, but you'll change the world. Yep. Well, I think this is a very interesting story. It's a shame that it, he wasn't acting on idealism. He was acting on probably being a little bit off. But I think it's a good one but to think, close on. I think the story is not him. The story is what he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, two different things. Like, yeah. It's he, not his personality, it's his actions. And it's the, the story right. is not his life. The story is his decision as an 18-year-old kid to fly to Red Square. That's and the story. Yes. To land in Red Square. That's the story. That action was crazy, was wild. Yeah, but look what happened. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of acts happen a lot in, in wars. And, uh, and sometimes they'll get a medal for it. Yeah. But this, this changed the world. It was part of Gorbachev. How much did that, uh, did how much did that lay the groundwork for Reagan and Gorbachev uh, to end the Cold War? Yeah. Who knows? We may never know. But the bottom line is, sometimes you got to do something crazy to change the world, right? Sometimes, sometimes you break the rules (laughs) to do what's right. And I think that's a good place to leave it for this episode. Yep. Uh, how do you feel? Are you, are you, do you feel good about this one? Oh, yeah. It was fun. I okay. enjoyed it. Um, it did you have fun? I did. Yeah, I got the music playing. It's blasting. Shall we sign off? Yes. And uh, This afternoon, you're going to go get your shot. It's going to be a good day. Have a good day. But yes. Keep on talking. But listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. See you next time, everybody. Bye.